Morning all. Uh, God's word comes this morning from um, Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 9 to 22. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 22. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from amongst you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God in Hor at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of our Lord, our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is the message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptively, and so do not be alarmed. Thanks for that reading, Peter. Uh, my name's Rod. If you're visiting on you, it's great to have you along. Uh, we're working through the book of Deuteronomy uh, throughout this term. And uh, we worked through in the first four weeks, chapters 1 to 11. Um, but starting last week, we're doing this big middle chunk, chapters 12 to 25, which is really all sort of the case law that extends the Ten Commandments. Uh, just looking at three themes that we're picking out, three small passages amongst that big section. So last week we looked at kingship. Um, today we're looking at the occult and guidance. And then next week we'll be looking at the theme of justice. So just a heads up as to where we're going. But let me pray for us and ask that God will help us as we come to his word now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray this morning that you might be at work by your spirit in us, challenging us, encouraging us afresh, that we might hear your voice and respond clearly. Help us to do so. And we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1994, an English insurance broker named Stephen Young uh, was found guilty of the double murder of Harry and Nicola Fuller. 
Uh, when the sentence came down, um, Sussex Police Detective Graham Hill, that had led the investigation, um, believed that justice had been served. The couple had been found dead on the floor of their home a year earlier, and the lead investigator in the case, Mr Hill, said that the verdict followed a five-week jury trial in which the jury in part stayed at the old Ship Hotel in Brighton uh, as they considered their verdict. And it marked the end of a very difficult period for himself and for the team that was working on the prosecution. But one month, one month after the trial had concluded, a front page headline splashed across the now defunct News of the World newspaper, um, and it appeared out of nowhere uh, for the prosecuting team. The headline said, Murder Jury's Ouija Board Verdict. And the report quoted the youngest member of the jury, a 24-year-old named Adrian, who said four jurors had tried to consult the spirits of the dead while locked overnight in Brighton's old ship hotel as they sought to reach a verdict. As the other eight jurors slept, this small group um, sat on the floor around a crude Ouija board that they had made from a piece of paper in the hotel room and the use of a hotel room wine glass. They each put a finger on top of the glass and asked the spirit to guide the glass over the letters of the alphabet and the words yes or no. One of these four jurors, a man named Ray, uh, took control sort of of the questioning and they um, raised up a spirit which identified itself as Harry Fuller, the murdered man. So Ray, one of the jurors, asked, who killed you? And it spelt out with the cup, Stephen Young. He then asked, how? Shot. As the jurors discussed what they should do with this information that confirmed their own thinking, the cup spelled out, vote guilty tomorrow. Now, by the end of this seance, uh, a couple of these uh, four jurors were crying and would later say that they had felt they had gone too far. Uh, that group retired to their rooms and agreed that they would say nothing about it to the others. But just a few weeks later, their actions came to light and the double murder conviction was overturned by the court and a retrial ordered. You see, as we consider the second half of Deuteronomy 18 today, uh, we reach a section that addresses consulting the dead, amongst other things. We have a list in verses 10 and 11 of very clear prohibitions about a whole range of occult practices. And so the question that I think this passage raises that I want to answer with you this morning is this. Why are God's people not to engage in occult practices? Why are God's people not to engage in occult practices. We'll see that this passage has two broad answers as we look at this question. And the first answer is this. The first answer is because they are detestable to the Lord. Because these practices are detestable to the Lord. So notice again our verses 9 to 12, which was read for us. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery or interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist 
or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Now, the context of these verses is really important for their interpretation. The beginning of this chapter deals with the Levites or the priests who ministered before God on behalf of the people. And the chapter ends, as we read, with a discussion of the prophets who were to deliver God's word to his people. So there we have two legitimate groups of mediators in contrast to this middle section containing these prohibitions on illegitimate middlemen and practices, if you like. So when they entered the promised land, the Israelites were not to imitate the occult practices of the pagan nations, who it seems use these kind of practices quite commonly for guidance and direction. So let's drill down for a moment on what some of these are in verses 10 and 11. We've given this list of practices and some of the Hebrew words are not that easy to define. Um, but what is very clear is it's meant to be somewhat of a comprehensive list of the kinds of uh, interpretation of natural phenomenon, of magic, of consulting spirits, uh, which was typical among the Canaanites, which the Israelites would have nothing to do with. Now, the first practice is unlike all the others that follow, really, um, child sacrifices, a horrific one that starts on the list. And you might say, what does it have in common actually with the rest of the list? Well, it seems it was used in a desperate form of search for knowledge and guidance um, in discerning the course of future events. And so we do have some examples of this being practiced by Canaanite tribes and others in that area. Um, later in 2 Kings chapter 3, the Moabite king actually sacrifices his own son as he's battling with the Israelites. He thinks he's going to lose. It's a way of discerning what's going to happen. And in this horrific event, he sacrifices his son for direction. It, it helps them not at all, as the Israelites are given victory by God. But the practices that follow here are perhaps uh, more commonly seen or spoken about today. Uh, the practices of divination or sorcery, interpretation of omens. Those first three, that group that follow, are all of a similar kind. Um, divination is about finding the will of the gods and related to a variety of practices, some of which were um, really about casting lots or just choosing randomly. So there's one example of um, given in Ezekiel where they would have a quiver of arrows and they would just take out an arrow and whichever arrow was the shortest or the longest it would indicate something. It was just a way of drawing lots, really. The second term there, sorcery, or maybe in your translation, soothsaying, um, is about reading natural phenomenon, uh, like even the clouds. You know, the clouds parted or there's a certain shape. Um, but it also can refer to incantations, um, to spells that people might have. Uh, the third term, interpretation of omens, again relates to reading natural phenomena. Um, and this term can be really broad. It can relate to the movement of birds, um, to shapes in fire or rain, even reflections in the water. It's about reading into whatever is around you in the natural environment. The next two terms that follow, uh, witchcraft and casting spells, are sort of a slightly different uh, focus. These are on forms of magic. Um, the first is probably about cutting up herbs and brewing them because the actual word is to cut up. It's about creating 
Bruise, if you like, that first one, which we have got translated witchcraft. And the second term, cast spells, um, is literally a phrase that is one who ties knots. In other words, it's seeking to bind another person or events that will follow with magic spells. And then the final three in the list are, again, another collection of similar terms, medium, spiritus, consulting the dead, all forms of consulting the spirit world. Uh, the first term, medium, uh, perhaps relates to seeking to call up any spirit of the dead, while the second term, spiritus, seems to refer to familiar spirits. How we might differentiate might be hard to understand. But, and the final term, consulting the dead, is probably just a, a catch-all summary term, which is just meaning the same thing. So, reading natural phenomena, magic, consulting spirits. In both verses 9 and 12, God makes it clear that such practices are detestable. More than that, we're told in verse 12 that it's because of such practices that God is judging the nations, the Canaanites in the promised land. It's why they're going to be destroyed and thrown out of the land. In contrast, we're told in verse 13 that God's people were to be blameless. They were to have no part of such practices. And again, it's reiterated verse 14. They were not permitted to listen to anyone who practiced sorcery or divination. So it's anticipating once they get into the promised land that they're not to be impressed with the dazzling forms of guidance that the pagan nations might have and somehow be drawn into listening to such um, efforts to find out the future or to determine events. And so we get this uh, description. And yet all of these prohibitions, uh, you would think that Israelites would have nothing to do with such things. Of course, that wasn't always the case. Um, most famously, their first king, Saul, failed miserably in this regard. Um, in the vain hope of getting some direction when he was in a crisis. So have a look with me. Uh, 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 to 7. Now Samuel, that's the prophet, was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his hometown of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land, which was what he was supposed to do. But verse 5, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. He's just tried to get rid of them all. And obviously they didn't do a thorough job because their immediate answer is, oh yeah, there's one down the road. The witch of Endor will take you there. How does she exist? He obviously didn't follow through in verse four. Saul's fear leads him to this desperate act in search of guidance because he thinks he's not hearing from God and God has told him that he's not going to hear from him because of his sin and turning away. But he goes down this route of doing what he knows is prohibited and it does not end well. And for us today, I guess whether it's driven by desperation for guidance in some manner or misguided curiosity, so many will engage in such occult practices today and they will often convince themselves that they are harmless. In 2012, um, I watched a documentary on SBS called uh, Darren Brown, Messiah. That's sort of a catchy title, isn't it? He speaks highly of himself. Darren Brown is a, a British illusionist, a mentalist, hypnotist, skeptic. 
he's known actually for his television specials um, and through his performances of mind reading and other feats, which appear to be the result of paranormal practices, but he actually claims he has no such abilities and he denounces those who do. He's trying to show them up as empty and harmless. They're just people making stuff up. So in this show, Messiah, he tried to show the flaws of a number of these kind of uh, practitioners in the United States. Uh, one of the five experts that he sought to expose was a woman who claimed to be a spiritualist pastor who contacted the dead. And so he acted as a medium who contacted the dead with a group of people that she had arranged on TV. And the show filmed him faking contact with three dead relatives of audience members who obviously believed that it was real. You can imagine the damage that's created by him making his point. But the problem with Brown's skeptical approach as an atheist is that although there are obviously fakes, lots of people pretending to do all kinds of things in what is becoming a commercialized industry, there is actually an unseen supernatural dimension to our world. To believe in God and to accept his word is to believe in the supernatural. Christians certainly can't dismiss it as, you know, hocus pocus and assure themselves that there's no harm you know, in mediums or seances or tarot cards or aura readings or palm readings or horoscopes or wicker or you go on and on and list more and more. Go to the Mind, Body, Spirit Festival in Sydney and you'll see a thousand and one possibilities for you. Rather, such occult practices open a person to demonic influence. The devil and his minions are well able to cause great harm through such practices. We need to be on our guard. More than that, the American pastor and writer John Piper has stated, not many people today believe that there are such things as demons, evil spirits who oppose God and his plans and blind the minds of unbelievers and do their best to deceive them. There's such a difference between the spiritual realm on the one hand and space technology and microsurgery and word processes and psychotherapy on the other hand that our enlightened high-tech West finds it hard to believe in demons. Even though our Lord took the devil and his demons with deadly seriousness, we somehow find it hard to take it seriously in a culture where we don't see the kinds of strange, natural, supernatural manifestations that we typically associate with them. But if we reject their reality, we reject the counsel of Jesus and all his apostles. Jesus said, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Peter said, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Apostle John said, every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard. Christianity stands or falls on the reality of the devil and his demons. Why? Because Jesus spent his whole ministry fighting them. And if they are not real, he is reduced to a comic figure. Now, as we apply this point to ourselves, we have to grasp that God declares that the supernatural is a reality and that seeking guidance from such mediums must be off limits. Even before we get to Deuteronomy 18, uh, Leviticus 20 verse 6 
God says this to his people. I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute himself by following them, and I will cut him off from his people. You see, as the famous Irish writer C.S. Lewis said, Christians can fall into one of two errors about the devil and occult practices. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, Lewis wrote. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You see, neither is good. As Christians, we need to acknowledge the spiritual battle that we're in, that there is a supernatural dimension to our world. While at the same time, we have to understand that Christ has defeated Satan on the cross, all powers, Colossians 2.15. And therefore, we're not to be in fear of Satan and his work or to be fixated with it. What we need to do is remember that Christ's death and resurrection has won victory, that Jesus is placed over every power, that he has extinguished the devil's work so that he has no claim on us. And so we're not to dabble in this area. God has forbidden his people to do so. So I guess I want to say to you this morning, if you have dabbled in these things, to please repent. Turn away from this. Understand the danger that you place yourself and others in. God has called you to move away from it. Which brings me to a second answer. A second answer of why God's people should not engage in occult practices. And that is because God offers better guidance. God offers better guidance. So much better. Notice again what is recorded. Deuteronomy 18 from verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord, your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. See, the sense of this passage in its initial context, is that there will be a succession of prophets who would arise to continue the work of Moses. Moses is about to die. He will die at the end of this book in Deuteronomy. And so what happens then as they go into the promised land? How will they hear the voice of God? Well, God will continue to raise up prophets that will speak his word directly to the people, which is why prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. And so you couldn't question the prophet's word because it was God's word. And if you did question it or disobey it, then God would judge you as a result. Yahweh would make known his word. He would send forth his prophets. The only danger, of course, is whether the person was a true prophet or not. But we've given some examples in verses 20 to 22 for the people to work that out. One was an obvious one. If they start speaking in the name of another God, you can kindly know that that's not from God. Uh, but secondly... Um, there's a phrase, it is true, or it is, um, is really speaking about the covenant and that it will be in line with what God has already revealed. And then finally it says that whatever the prophet says will come true. So if it predicts tomorrow that X will happen and Y happens, then you can know that prophet is not a true prophet. 
Yahweh would make himself known directly and clearly through his prophets. His words would be clearly understood. It would be in such contrast to the ambiguous so-called revelations of occult practices that just created confusion and uncertainty. That created by those trying to practice magic or consult spirits or interpret natural phenomenon. It's actually impossible to discover the future by such occult practices. What they're going to provide is false guidance that leads people in fear, that leads them astray. You know, in his book, The Last Battle, um, Cornelius Ryan uh, recounts the details of a phone call to Hitler in April of 1945. Uh, the phone rang in the bunker and it was his right-hand man, Joseph Goebbels, his minister for propaganda on the line. And Goebbels was ecstatic because he just heard that the American president, Franklin Roosevelt, had died. Now, Germany was actually caving in at this point. The Russians were closing in Berlin and were, Berlin and were smashing the German army and Berlin would soon fall. But none of that mattered to Goebbels because, as he told Hitler, it is written in the stars. The last half of April will be the turning point for us. Now, he's referring to two previous astrology readings that he had made on behalf of the German army and their choices um, that had forecast that the hardest blows against Germany would happen in the first half of April 1945. But then there would be a turning point and everything would go well and they would have an overwhelming victory at the end of the month. Well, we all know how that story ended. Um, at the end of the month, when this great victory should have come, both Hitler and Goebbels took their own life on April 30, 1945. But in the meantime, their decisions caused the deaths of millions of people based on an astrology reading. Look, as we apply this final section to ourselves, we need to consider our own thinking about seeking God's guidance today to make sure that we're not looking for help in the wrong places. Many Christians are anxious about guidance today. There can be desperate points of crisis in their own life where they can feel like King Saul and start want to look in the wrong places. And so often I think for Christians today though, it's not fear that there will be no guidance, but it's fear that they will somehow miss the guidance that God provides through some fault of their own. And I think that's because Christians are aware that God has demonstrated in the Old Testament that he can communicate in many and various ways, in miraculous ways. And the result is that Christians are often looking for God to direct them through unique signs. They're really looking for omens. They'll look at anything, you know, the parting of the clouds. God to arrange particular circumstances so that they would feel confirmation in a decision they have to make. I remember when I was first going to ask my wife, Christine, out on a date. I was looking and praying for some circumstance to confirm it. Now, there was a right concern that this was a big decision, um, that if this relationship went well, it might lead to marriage. That was an important thing. I should be praying about that. There was some good intentions behind that. But I remember praying at times look, if this is meant to happen, tonight, uh, happen, Lord, can I end up chatting to her tonight at the end of youth group? Or, you know, if she comes up and speaks to me, can that be the sign? 
that I should ask her out. That's pathetic, right? On, on reflection, I was just shy and fearful of being rejected, and I would have read into the slightest positive interaction with her. I was just putting out a fleece like Gideon. And Gideon got rebuked for putting out his fleece, if you remember. He's failing to trust the Lord. What does God promise us in these last days? Well, have a look with me. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke in our, to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, God's interaction with the nation of Israel is described as um, through the prophets in lots of different ways. Verse 1. And, of course, the Bible records many of these ways. You know, God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, Exodus 3. Still small voice to Elijah, 1 Kings 19. He writes on palace walls for King Belshazzar in Daniel 5. He can speak through Balaam's donkey. But the question we need to ask is how should we expect God to speak to us in these last days that we're living are you praying for a donkey to speak to you tonight? Well, verse 2, the writer gives us the answer. In terms of what God has promised to do, the record of Christ's life and all its implications in the Bible is the method. Jesus is God's great final word to humanity. And it's his voice that we should be listening to in the pages of Scripture. See, there's a progression from promise to fulfillment when we go from God's communication to humanity in the Old Testament to his communication through Jesus, the word made flesh in the New Testament. Over time, the phrase, a prophet like me in Deuteronomy, that Moses said God would raise up, came to be understood that it would not only point forward to other prophets that would follow Moses, but one great prophet that would come that would be even greater than Moses and when the Apostle Peter preached his second sermon in Acts chapter 3, he said, Jesus is that one. Jesus is the one greater than Moses, the prophet who was to come. He is the one that you're to listen to. Don't go looking elsewhere. Jesus exceeds the clarity of the prophets as God's messengers. Messengers have been replaced with God himself in flesh. Now, of course, I am not saying that that limits how God might guide us. If God chooses to, he could speak to you in a dream. He does so in places around the world, in countries where his word is suppressed, actually. For that matter, God could still write on a wall or appear in a burning bush. But in terms of what God has promised to do for you, the Bible is the method. Now, Christians have all the riches of God's guidance in his word. More than that, we've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to lead us. We've been given the great privilege of prayer that we can go before our Heavenly Father and ask for wisdom. We've been given a community of believers, other mature Christians that we might receive counsel from. Through all these common means of grace, God has given us more than enough to make decisions without going looking for signs. Now, I think our problem even at that point is where well, we say, well, you know, I'm, I'm wanting complete knowledge, black and white. Well, you have it in the Bible for moral questions. You don't need to ask whether you should lie or steal. You're told not to. 
But what about things that are in the wisdom category? Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry that Christian or this Christian? Well, that's a different thing. God's not going to give you a direct word from Scripture about that. But you've got all those means that I've just spoken about. Those wisdom issues, we simply need to ask God. James 1.5, ask God for wisdom and he will direct you. Pray, ask other believers, read his word. Be led by his spirit and make a decision with the mind that God has given you. I think our problem at that point is we still can be dissatisfied because we're thinking we want an exact blueprint of our life. Just tell me everything that will happen tomorrow, the next day, and I'll be content, God. I can tell you if God did that for you, you would stop placing your faith in him immediately. You wouldn't need to have any faith. You would know everything. In fact, if you knew everything, you would be God. You see, we're called to trust with our life day by day, to keep walking step by step. We haven't been given an exact blueprint. We've been given a guide to follow Jesus Christ. So follow your leader. If I'm looking for guidance in the wrong places, I'm only going to be disappointed and confused. You don't need a sign. No one needs to write on a wall for you tomorrow. You have been given Christ, the final word. Through him and his spirit granted to you and his word given to you, you have all the resources that you need. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who calls us to step forward in trust, to follow your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Help us to be those who are not superstitious, not hanging on to pagan practices that just lead and indeed can open us to the devil and his work. Rather, help us to be content with the incredible gift of your Son and your Word and your Spirit. Strengthen us, we pray, to live as your people, not looking to any guidance but that which you give us. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.